Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Today we have Professor Johan Neem. He's Professor of History at Western Washington University. He's the author of Creating a Nation of Joiners, Democracy and Civil Society in Early National Massachusetts, and Democracy Schools, The Rise of Public Education in America. He has a new book out with Johns Hopkins Press called What's the Point of College? Seeking Purpose in an Age of Reform. Welcome, Professor Neem. Thank you so much for having me here. All right. You know, there's a quote right on page two that stood out to me. You say that your students, they really feel the pressure. And the pressure you're talking about is a little different from the pressure that I underwent when I was an undergrad in the in the early 80s of just, you know, getting decent grades and getting through college, that there are there are other kinds of pressures that have come in on the, the younger generation, the recent generation of students. What kind of pressures are those? Yeah, no, I mean, it's something that I think about a lot. I teach this course called Going to College in America, and I think it draws a very diverse student body. It asks the question that a lot of students are wondering, why am I here? You know, they've been told from a very young age that you have to go to college, and they get to college, and they've been told they need a college degree, and I think part of the pressure is that's kind of how we create opportunity in America. It seems to be our only way. And so people are being channeled into college. <clears throat> they don't have a real understanding of how college works or what it's for. And they feel like this is the only way that they're going to achieve economic security. And, and I'm not sure that that's entirely true, but I think that's certainly the message that they've been getting. And I have a lot of first-generation students. And so there's a lot of anxiety. I mean, they feel like the weight of the world is on them. And sometimes I'll ask them to, you know, sit down, think about an idea that challenges them. And I can see them wanting to embrace an, a concept or an idea. But at the same time, they're just, they're worried that if they, you know, stray from the path that they're on even an hour, a little bit, their whole future will fall apart. Um, I don't, I think you're right that, that's a different sensibility than at least when I was in college. I think people have always thought of college as opportunity, um, as a mode of social mobility. But I think there's something internal. There's a kind of anxiety with students today that is different. Yeah, I, I, I went to UCLA and it was, you know, big public university. It wasn't nearly as selective as it is now, I think UCLA got 120,000 applications last wow. year. <laughs> and <laughs> the, you know, I took five years and a few summer schools to graduate. I had kind of bounced around my first couple of years and uh, you know, played a lot of intramural basketball and, and neglected some classes because I was bored. Hmm. And I mean, everyone knew, you know, you don't, don't screw up too much, but there really wasn't this super pressure, even for the kids who were heading toward pre-med, they, it just, you didn't see that, that anxiety that you, that you talked about uh, a moment ago. And it makes me wonder, you know, I I wouldn't want to be a student right now. I wouldn't have some, I wouldn't have a lot of fun uh, if I were in school. Now you, now you're at a university that isn't a super selective institution. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on was because you're, you're not part of the Ivy League. You're not one of, on one of the flagship universities. And we need to hear more about students from the, the, the colleges that aren't always, you know, at the top of the U.S. News and World Report 
rankings. What is the common profile of students at Western Washington? Well, I think we have quite a mix. You know, schools like Western, where I teach, are the most common kind of school for four-year students. You know, and right. one of the things, one of the things, just to build on your comments, one of the things that that drives me crazy about sort of journalism and even scholarship on higher ed is so much of what we study is about the flagship publics and the Ivy League schools, right? And we generalize from them about what professors do what students are like. And the reality is, you know, most students are in community colleges. And if they're in four-year colleges, they're in public regional schools like mine. Yeah, I remember reading one, one article by a journalist who, who, who lived in Washington, D.C., uh, and writing about education, how super hardworking the kids are today. And this was mostly about high school kids heading, heading to college. But they're, they're such hyper overachievers. They're taking all these AP courses, and it's really grinding them down to nothing. And then I looked at the high school survey of student engagement and found that 57% of all high school students don't do any or do do one hour or less of reading homework <laughs> in a week, in a week. Yeah. And, and I thought, OK, yeah. this is because this journalist lives out in Montgomery County, Maryland, going to one of those very super suburban high schools and wants to get their wants to get his kid into into one of the Ivies. And this is so atypical of, of the youth yeah. population. So I guess, you know, here's what I would say about our students. We have a cross-section. You know, some of our best students are, could be in the Ivy League, and yep. some students are, come really struggling academically. We have a lot of first-generation students, um, a lot of first-generation students who are non-white, but a lot of them who are coming from, you know, white families as well. We have a lot of students who work. I mean, what... The data show is that most students, you know, the data show that students are spending less time doing schoolwork, but they are actually replacing that time largely by working, not by partying or sleeping or socializing. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're earning money. And I have a lot of students who are, you know, they're scared of college debt. Um, they're, not, right. they're not always right to be as scared as they are. <clears throat> and so... But I have also students who have food insecurity and they have to work or they don't know a way out other than to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they need the money. Um, but what I find the most amazing is some of these students, and I can't tell you who they are the day they walk into my classroom, but they don't know that they have minds that they can learn to use well. They haven't, and I sometimes, some of these students you see over a couple of years completely wake up. And and if they get the right professors and they have the and they're open to the right things and this is why you designed this course going to college in America, you know, to let them know these things. Yeah, I mean that's absolutely right. And I think what I want them to know is that there's a kind of possibility for them to have some freedom to explore. And the challenge is one challenge is they haven't been told that there's other goals to college other than their degree. Mm-hmm. and a job. And so, and I don't blame them. You know, they've been hearing from quite young age, you got to go to college and get a degree if you want to be successful in America today. And yeah. who knows, maybe they're right. But so they come here and the possibility that college could be a time for intellectual exploration. The idea that there are some public goods that are vital to college, that we're educating leaders for our democracy. They just don't know that. And it's not that they're selfish or not open to those ideas, they haven't heard them. 
Mm-hmm. They don't know what the liberal arts are. You know, it's an absence. They're che- it's an absence of knowledge that guides them. But they don't feel free, right? They don't feel free to say, you know, whatever I do in college, I'll be okay in life because I'm getting a good education. And so I can explore the natural world, the human world. I can, if I'm fascinated by chemistry, I can do chemistry. If I'm fascinated by history, I can do history. Um, if literature helps me see the world in a new way, I can do literature. If geology does, I can do geology. They're really scared to move from a path that leads directly to something they understand. It's not that they're not hardworking. It's that there's a kind of set of, they feel confined. Um, and they don't know, they don't, I think people don't know what they're missing because they haven't experienced it. But some do. That's the magic. Some do, right? Mm -hmm. Some suddenly find themselves in places in a class or with a professor somewhere on campus and something happens and they do open themselves up. And the one thing that I love teaching about a school like ours is that is a magical thing that happens, you know, that that students who might be first generation who don't know about their, their own intellectual capacities, about the world of the mind, who haven't been living their life trying to get into the top Ivy League school are brilliant sometimes. And, they, and if they open their minds, they just have so much to offer. Yeah. And, so, and, and when they heard all that talk about success, how, how was success defined? What, what did they so assume the authorities meant yeah. by success? So just that's tr- a good question, right? I'm at a public regional university. Success means being a teacher, means being a police officer, means being a mid-level professional. Some, I mean, we have a very good record of getting students who are pre-med into, into medical schools. We have, you know, we have students who go on to the kinds of careers that are imagined by people at the flagships or Ivy League schools, and they can do that from a school like Western. But for a lot of students, the goals are not, how do I get a clerkship, you know, with a federal judge? The goals are, how do I achieve economic security and stability and take advantage of this opportunity I've been given. You know, it's not, it's not how do I maximize wealth for most of them. And so I think that is a difference from say, you know, being at, being at an elite school where people are going to plan on, you know, wall street or med school or law school, or they're, you know, they're imagining different kinds of career paths. You know, they're, they're just seeking a good life in a sense. Well, what what I, what I was thinking of is, does success, do they incorporate into the idea of success something like being a good father, being a good mother, developing a, a, a certain moral awareness about, about themselves and about the world? Do they, do they say, I want to graduate as a person with better taste, someone who has, has a, you know, historical, a historical sense of things, someone who is, I want, I want to become an eloquent individual. Do those more humanistic and and moral successes enter into their their calculations? Yeah, that's a hard question to answer. I think, you know, based on my experience with students, particularly in the general ed courses, not the ones who necessarily become history majors, I think they don't see that connection, and I think that. Of course, I, I mean, I know these students. They are good people. They want yes, to be good yes. parents. They, you know, they want to be good citizens. 
the thing that they don't do and that we as professors don't effectively do is give them the connection that learning about history or literature or music or chemistry or physics or learning to see the world through math is going to help you become a good parent, mm-hmm. a good neighbor. Right. Uh, you'll see the world more richly. The world will be just a richer place to observe for you, you know. Right. But, but, but when when the politicians and this is uh, Republican and Democrat, this was the, the the George W. Bush's Department of Education and Barack Obama's Department of Education. It really was about economic well-being, right? Economic success. Yeah. And we can see that with something that you go into a bit, the college scorecard. What was the college right. scorecard? So the college scorecard was an effort by the Obama administration, um, although as you say, Democrat and Republican, it's built on ideas um, during the second Bush administration to provide a set of clear, easy metrics about what colleges are worth going to. And the question then becomes, how do you measure worth? And one of the measures has to do with, you know, the average sticker price. So most schools that have high tuitions actually discount. So most students are paying much less. A lot of people don't know that, mm-hmm. so they don't know to have, you know, so that helps people say, oh, I could possibly go to this school because actually it charges, generally people pay much less than others. But the other major measure was earnings. And the trend has been not just earnings, but in many states and also now at the federal level, earnings broken down by program. How much does an English major earn? How much does a business major earn? Right. And the message that's being sent there is that this is a measure of what a good education is equal to. And the other piece is graduation rate. So this message you're mm-hmm. getting, in a sense, from the scorecard and its equivalents in states across the country is the goal of a college is to get in cheap, get out fast, and make money. Right, and, right, right. And you know, those are the three criteria. And if, you're, if the goal, <laughs> and, and if the goal of college is actually to get in, spend some time really kind of away from the busyness of life to expand your mind and not fully understand why that expansion has cultural, political, personal, and economic benefits, um, but just have the freedom to engage in intellectual exploration. There's no way that those three data points and the broader cultural message around them prepare students for that. Right. You know, I remember going to the college scorecard, which was it was a website created by the Obama administration. I think it was around 2014. And you could go on to there and click on schools and you could get what was it? The the average income of a graduate from this school 10 years after matriculation, not not graduation. I think it was matriculation 10 years after. And you get a number. I mean, it would be $76,000 a year. And it was one of those instantaneous numerical rankings that you, oh, well, if I go to the University of Colorado, I can be making 48. Whereas if I go to Colorado State, I'm only making 41. And it was, you know, yeah, yeah, it it reduced the whole thing, as you put it, (laughs) you put it very well a few minutes ago. Uh, Paying a little bit while you're there, paying a lower rate while you're there, getting out fast, and then making money, making good money because of that. that. I think that really was 
what this scorecard came down to, not how much you learn, not about the quality of the general education course, any, any of those things. And uh, a, a lot of people were very upset, especially the liberal arts colleges were upset about the college scorecard as a reduction of education to dollars. What's the tuition at Western Washington? It is about, I think it's about $7,000 uh-huh. right now. Yeah, I think. that's um, a deal. That's so a deal. We are actually a good deal right? yeah. for right. in-state students. Yeah. Um, so, you know, um, that's actually the state of Washington cut a lot. And then it and then it started to build back. And so Washington residents, the base tuition, I'm looking it up, is sixty five hundred. Mm-hmm. But then you have, you know, about a couple thousand of fees on top of that. And so, you know, one of the things that happens, you know, going back to my earlier comment about journalists and talking about elite schools is there's all these stories out there about the student debt crisis. And there are two populations that have a debt crisis. One are students who go to often online for-profit colleges, but sometimes community colleges or four-year colleges and don't get a degree, but end up with a lot of debt. This includes people in the military. And so they've either sort of been swindled by a for-profit vendor or they just, you know, for whatever reason, their life has not enabled them to stay in school and complete a degree, they're, you know, those are people that sort of who we really need to be concerned about. And then there's people who go to business school or med school and they have, or law school and they have high debt, but they can afford their debt. But for most Americans, there's studies that show that if you graduate from a four-year public college, your debt burden is less than most Americans have for their first car. Hmm. And that given the, you know, and given the long-term payoff of the degree that, Actually, the cost-benefit analysis turns out in your favor compared to 20, 30 years ago. And so there's a kind of way in which we go from what the tuition and debt burden is at places that are really expensive like Yale or Michigan or Berkeley, you know, and talk about populations that are really vulnerable, which are the people who try to go to college, don't have a lot of money and resources, and maybe don't have the kind of stability in their lives, but they're not the ones who are at Yale, you know, right. for the most part. Right. And we need to remember there's different populations that have different needs, but for most American students, college is too expensive and we should, you know, from my perspective, fund it. And partly because I think the more that we privatize the cost of college, the more students are internalizing the message that this is an investment in me and it's, I'm paying and I have to get my returns as a return on investment to use Obama's scorecard kind of framing. But it's not that all colleges are just out of reach. You know, a place like Western Washington University can provide a good college education at a reasonable price. Right. You, you know, um, t- to get into the book, you, you have two little set pieces. You call them occasions. Occasion one is North Carolina, 2015. And occasion two is Maryland, 2016. What happened in North Carolina in 2015? So in North Carolina in 2015, the University of North Carolina's Board of Governors chose Margaret Spellings, who had been President Bush's Secretary of Education, to be their, is it their chancellor? Um, and Of the whole system, not just Chapel the Hill, whole the whole system. system. Yeah. Yes, right, exactly. Of the whole system, so multiple campus systems. And Spellings was the author under the Bush administration of what's known now as the Spellings Report, but it was, you know, one of these blue ribbon papers that 
tries to say, how do we, what kind of education do we need for the future? And the Spellings Report, many of whose recommendations um, the Obama administration picks up on, so this, you know, this is not, in many ways, became a bipartisan consensus. What was interesting to me about the Spellings Report, compared to almost any previous similar report in American history, is the words liberal arts, liberal education are not mentioned. Citizenship, Mm. I think, it sort of barely registers as a goal. The idea that, you know, Mm. that we're expanding education because we need an educated citizenry or we need educated leaders. And the phrase intellectual capital emerges, right? The goal of college is really to provide opportunity for people to get ahead and the kinds of workers that we need for our future economy. And that's it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the scary part for me. It's not that we don't need economic innovation and we don't need people to be that a good economy is not a public good, that we don't want people to have social mobility and to be you know, economically successful. It's the sort of reductiveness that this is what we need and how do we get there fast. But other things, there's ways in which they say, well, how do we do this that makes it really cheap? Well, one of the ways that they recommend are finding kinds of models where you don't really need professors. And if education, one of the goals of education is actually the production of knowledge, you want a strong academy in the universe, in in America that can be engage in the kinds of conversations that produce knowledge. Um, and that means having professors. But the other thing is education is so personal that much of what I see as the heart and soul of what I do is, ha- is the conversations I have with students, often one-on-one, sometimes in classes that are building relationships, that are helping people see that there's a connection between, you know, what to them seems like abstract academic knowledge and sort of being a good human being, that learning this will help them see the world differently and help them And it's because I care about them and I care about this material that I try to connect the two. And those things have real value, but they're not, that kind of value is not expressed in the Spellings Report. So I think that was a moment where we saw what are the priorities of at least the leaders of this particular state at that moment. You put it this way. In reality, Spellings Report offers a vision of the university without its academic purposes, personnel, or practices. In short, Spellings forces us to ask whether American colleges and universities ought to be academic institutions. By hiring her, the members of UNC's Board of Governors made their answer to that question known. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. Um, So your second occasion is Maryland 2016, a year later. What happened at Maryland? This wasn't the University of Maryland now. No, this was Mount St. Mary's University, which is a Catholic college in Maryland and a pretty, pretty, pretty long-standing one. What happened there is their new, their new president, um, what's his name? Simon Newman. Their new president, Simon Newman, created a stir where he started to talk about updating the institution to focus on basically getting people into good careers. And he made some comments that suggested that, you know, this Catholic university needs to focus on the needs of today and other things like liberal education and the kind of moral commitments that may have animated Catholic education and liberal education are kind of outdated. And, you know, he came, he was, you know, Simon Newman himself was an MBA he came out of the financial world and he just didn't see the university as being a place for 
that kind of moral intellectual formation rather than as a place where you enter in order to sort of go through a pipeline that emerges on the other end with a clear outcome. And he felt that the kind of things I think that, you know, I value in college education, both in my own experience, but also when I see students come alive, which is the unexpected intellectual blossoming of people isn't really the point. Mm -hmm. He wanted to weed out struggling students early on so that retention rates would look would look better at the school. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, he had a famous phrase where he said, you know, he, he referred to drowning the bunnies. <laughs> but what was really going on was it seems that because things like the college scorecard incentivize institutions to produce certain data points, um, he wanted to weed out students who may not be successful early on so their data looked better. You know, so they look better on, on scorecards. And, and this is one of the ways in which, you know, assessment tails and have provided a narrow set of measures can wag the educational dog because, I mean, this was true for U.S. News and World Report as well. Colleges want to rank high on any ranking system. And, you know, so he became very controversial because what that actually means is that for this, you know, this institution, this Catholic institution, that, that many students who might... Um, really benefit from their time there or might benefit from um, greater investment and care were actually seen as liabilities rather than opportunities. Right. Here, here, he wrote a letter after the controversy broke. He wrote a letter to parents, and you, and you quote a portion of it, and I'm going to read it. He told the parents that the university is, quote, in growth mode and on the move. We are transforming our 200-year-old Catholic university to meet the needs of a demanding global economy. Your student is a part of this exciting transformation. We are building on our existing liberal arts core and Catholic intellectual tradition and preparing students for a more technical, skills-based job market in a way that only the Mount can. Okay, transforming our 200-year-old Catholic university. That's, uh, that's I, I guess that's a good thing. <laughs> right? Well, I uh, think for me, yeah. I mean, I think that this sounds like you could be, you know, you're making a, you know, you're a consultant um, right. coming into a corporation saying, how do we update this product or get rid of the old product lines? Who needs right. an Oldsmobile, right? right? And I think that's actually the heart of what my book is, is that you know, while we do need to think a lot about how to reform higher education, how to make our teaching better, how to make our scholarship um, add real value, how to um, provide students um, particularly first-generation students who don't have the resources and affordable education that they can take, how to provide adult education, adult learners opportunities that are kind of alternative to the full-time day school model. Like, we do have things that we need to struggle with, but at the heart of it, those struggles have to be oriented by a commitment to the ends of our institutions and education. And what you see in that letter is this idea that the past is irrelevant, that the sort of deeper good, the, what I call my book, the internal goods of education, the intellectual and moral formation of human beings. You know, I contrast Simon Newman to, to Cardinal Newman, to John Henry Newman, right. who <laughs> famously wrote about the purposes of education and Catholic education in particular, and the role of liberal education within Catholic education. Those internal goods that we are forming human beings to serve multiple roles in society through a deep immersion immersion in 
in the liberal arts and sciences that will develop their minds and hearts and their character. So they will emerge as thoughtful, good people capable of asking thoughtful, good questions about the world. Now, how we do that well, how we improve doing that, those are the questions we should ask. What we see happening in this occasion, both at UNC, at the University of North Carolina, and at Mount St. Mary's College, is this idea that all those things are irrelevant. We live in a global world that needs technically skilled people. And how do we get those people? And how do we get them fast? And, um, and let's not pause too much to see what's lost, because that's just you know, professors being nervous and scared about their jobs, or that's just professors wanting to be irrelevant in a changing, fast changing world. And part of my book is to say, no, that's not true. You know, I mean, I've been accused many times of saying, well, you're just worried about the future of your job. And actually, I'm not, (laughs) you know, like, I feel like personally, you know, I don't want to be out of a job, obviously. Um, But I think schools are slow changing enough that hopefully I, you know, my personal job is okay. What I'm worried about is the future of students and professors and institutions that really care about moral and intellectual formation. Right. And that takes time. That takes time. It's not something you do quickly um, because it, you know, it has to become a kind of habit of, you know, you have to repeat things. You have to learn things. You have to, sometimes education is layered. You don't know which, how one layer will inform the next, but it's a set of layering of reading this book and then that book, you know, and those, it may be arbitrary that you took these two classes, but they provide a lens that helps you see the world a little differently. And there's nothing in that kind of language that says that's good, you know, that's worth the time and money. Well, we, we get a lot of that in, in the book. Uh, the title is, What's the Point of College? Seeking Purpose in an Age of Reform. Johan Neem, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you.